want to take a minute to talk about baptism and what we're going to do here today. This is one of those uh, aspects of church practice that is ubiquitous in some form or another across the world. And yet, over the centuries, over the millennia, it seems that it has increasingly lost its power and its relevance in the believer's life. And theology has done its best to keep pace with its meaninglessness by stripping it of any significance other than as an outward sign of an inward change. And yet we know that historically, people were willing to give their lives, literally be put to death because of a difference in how they were viewing the importance of baptism. And we would not be here, the radical reformation of the Anabaptist movement that was so pivotal even in the Moravian and Baptist and Pentecostal movements would not be here if it weren't for those convictions. And so either we stand on a falsehood of people who got it all wrong and should have just cared little about baptism, or we stand on a recovering truth that is still in need of clarification and strengthening in our own minds and practices. And I want to give you a couple scriptures, and I want, to, I want to just give you three scriptures perhaps here at the beginning, two at the start, that I want you to think about as perhaps enlightening, helpful for understanding baptism. When Jesus has the Last Supper with the disciples, he institutes communion. But they didn't call it that, and they didn't know it as that. It was really just a weighty moment that was leading into a troubling crisis, ultimately the ultimate crisis at Calvary. But in this supper, he takes the cup, and he lifts it up, and he says, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. This is one of the only places, it's only one of two places in all the Bible where we have Christ's blood spoken of explicitly tied to the phrase for the remission of sins. It's one of two places. And where is the other place? The other place is on the day of Pentecost when Peter stands and he borrows the same phraseology that Jesus used in Matthew 26. He uses for, the same word, the same tense, ice in the Greek, for the remission of sins. But only this time Peter says to a multitude who were asking what should we do, he says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God shall call. 
And with many other words he solemnly testified, saying to them, Save yourselves from this wicked and perverse generation. So we have this for the remission of sins, and we have no problem seeing that the blood is for the remission of sins. But theologians choke on the idea that Peter would say, be baptized for the remission of your sins. And they make great pretzels of their brains trying to rationalize how four doesn't mean four. But the problem is, is it's, an, it's a directly borrowed phrase. Not the foreword, but the whole phrase is borrowed from the Last Supper when he was holding the cup. So whatever rationalizations we want to subject this scripture to, we must subject his, also, his, his Last Supper comments to the same ones. And if the shoe doesn't fit on that foot, then it shouldn't fit on the day of Pentecost. So we have a dilemma. We have a dilemma. Is this some magical moment that magically washes off people's sins? And the answer is no, it is not. We don't teach baptismal regeneration from that angle. But there is a way to harmonize these scriptures that brings meaning and power into this step and shows us how it does play a part in the saving relationship we have with Jesus Christ. One of the things I'm going to say is that the New Testament does not describe salvation as an act, but as a place. Get that through your head. <laughs> salvation is a place. And the place is Jesus. That's why salvation is spoken of positionally. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Abide in me and let my words abide in you. Whoever abides in the vine is going to bear much fruit. We could go on and on and on, but I'm intentionally not looking at my scriptures because I, I want to go fast here. But you know them. Scripture after scripture after scripture that speaks of salvation in Christ. Jesus was walking reconciliation. He was a walking reconciliation. He was the living proof that mortal man could come back into unity with the immortal almighty God. In his humanity, he could bleed, he could hurt, he could wince with pain, he could die. But living in that tent of human flesh was the Almighty. So Zechariah says, they will look on me. Though Yahweh says in Zechariah, they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only begotten son. Yahweh is the me. 
The Son is the body, the humanity, the person, the human person that Yahweh was completely one with. So he was this walking reconciliation. You get that? And if we want to be reconciled to God, we have to come into Jesus. We have to come be part of Jesus. We've got to get to the place where we can say with Paul, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. Where we can say with Paul, I have died and my life is hid with Christ in God. We can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is truly gain. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Amen. That's how we've got to think of this. Jesus as a place. How, how is his blood going to reconcile us? How is, he gonna, how is he going to wipe out our debts? How is he going to cancel our problems? How is he going to make us okay to go to heaven? Simply put. How is this going to happen? Is he going to come by with a, with a crimson stamp and say, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven? Is that how he's going to do it? No, that, that's not how he's going to do it because that's not salvation as a place. That's not in Christ. How he's going to do it is he's going to form a covenant relationship with us. You ever heard of a poor girl marrying a rich guy or a rich guy marrying a poor girl? Anybody ever heard of that? Oh, good. Amen. Well, it happens, believe it or not. What happens when a poor girl marries a rich guy? The rich guy has, I don't know what's rich anymore, a million bucks in the bank? I don't know. And she's got $100,000 of student debt. And... How are we going to see this leveled out? Is he going to walk by her one day and just say, I just want to give you $100,000? No, that's not even the main point. He's going to say, I love you, and you love me, and so we are going to become one. And your liabilities are going to become my responsibility, and my assets are going to become your possession. Now, we may create strange marriages these days that parse these things out where they're no longer so, but in a traditional marriage, that's what happens. Whatever was hers is his. Whatever was his is hers. Whether you speak of the problems or you speak of the assets, they share them mutually. Do you understand? And so that's what Jesus offers us. He doesn't offer us a crimson stamp. He doesn't say, I'm going to call you righteous even though you're not. He says, I want you to come into covenant with me. And I want, to, I want you to lose everything that makes you you apart from me. <laughs> and we're going to be one. Because we know that the marriage covenant is merely a metaphor of the oneness between God and his people, according to Paul. That's the mystery. And so he says... If you'll come and marry me, if you'll come and espouse yourself to me and take on my name and take on my headship and submit to my spirit, receive my very spirit inside of you, then I am going to take possession of all of your liabilities and you're going to take possession of all of my assets, all of my righteousness before God. And that is the reconciliation. 
Thank you, Jesus. And so let's tie these things together. If Jesus' blood atones for our sins, then it is the million dollars in the bank that we need for our debts of $100,000 and some. And we're not going to get that outside of covenant. We're going to have to come into oneness with him before we can take possession of that asset. I want to read a scripture just briefly from, um, from Isaiah. What is Zion according to the New Testament? What is Zion today? Hebrews 12, you have come to Mount Zion, the church of the living God, and so many other scriptures as well. Because I love Zion, I will not keep silent. Because my heart yearns for Jerusalem, I cannot remain silent. I will not stop praying for her until her righteousness shines like the dawn and her salvation blazes like a burning torch. The nations will see your righteousness. World leaders will be blinded by your glory. And you will be given a new name by the Lord's own mouth. The Lord will hold you in his hand for all to see a splendid crown in the hand of God. Never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your new name will be the city of God's delight. And your new name will be the bride of God. For Yahweh delights in you and he will claim you as his bride. Yahweh delights in Zion and will claim Zion as his bride. How many wives does Jesus have? One. So when I talk about finding remission of sins through covenant relationship, we've got to become part of the bride that is in this relationship. In Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might cleanse her and present her to himself without spot or blemish or any such thing but a pure virgin. God is in covenant relationship with a bride, not with a bunch of independent individuals. He's not a polygamist. Amen. He's in covenant relationship with his bride, and he, that bride is Zion. And right here it says, your new name will be called the city of God's delight and the bride of God. For Yahweh delights in you and he will claim you as his bride. Your children will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem, just as a young man commits himself to a bride. Then your God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. So we're having a covenant where the, 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 the individuals are committing to Jerusalem and Jerusalem is in a marriage covenant with God. That's the exchange that's taking place where we're losing our identity. We're losing everything that makes us a condemned sinner. Amen. And we're saying, God, I want a fresh start. I want to be part of something bigger than myself. I want to be part of that which is already a spouse to you. I want to be part of the new Jerusalem, the Zion of God. I want to ask you a question. When Peter talks about baptism in his epistle, his first epistle, third chapter, 
Does Peter make baptism more analogous to a bath or to the flood? How so? You know, this kind of looks like a bath. I mean, like, we're talking about being dirty, and there's water, and there is a sense in which this represents cleansing. But I want you to see that this represents much more than cleansing. It represents a commitment. And if the commitment is true, you are freed and clean from the old person. But if the commitment is not true, this is no magical cleansing here. So what did, how did Peter, somebody give me, how, how did Peter make water baptism analogous to the flood? He said in the days of Noah, eight souls were saved through water. And he said in the same way, baptism now saved you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the pledge, the commitment, covenant of a good promise toward God. He's quoting from 1 Peter 3, where he says, in the days of Noah... Eight souls were saved through water. So there's no doubt that he's talking about water baptism here. And then he says, corresponding to that, corresponding to the flood, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not a bath, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what was the flood doing and how can we look at the flood as a saving moment? Because when you and I think of the flood, we don't think salvation, do we? We think judgment, don't we? Hmm. So how is Peter likening baptism to the flood? How do we see the flood as salvation? Well, the flood is when the water covers over all of the rebellion against God and the same waters of judgment lift the obedient in salvation above the judgment. So the waters that divide are the waters that unite, as my dad would say. So it was salvation in that sense, as it also says that Noah was obeyed and through it, how does it say, brought the salvation of his household, condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness that is according to faith. So, the flood is where rebellion is separated from the righteous. So, if, if, that's, if that's what is analogous to baptism then what are, the, what are the rebellious that are supposed to stay in the water? Who, who, who are the rebellious that are supposed to remain under this symbolic judgment? You see, you can't be espoused in a covenant relationship to one Lord until the old Lord has died. You can't be married to the Lord Jesus in that saving covenant of beautiful exchange of assets and liabilities until your old husband is dead. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 7? As long as her husband lives, 
She is bound to her husband. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry another. And he's speaking of repentance here. So only when we die to the legitimacy and the stubborn will and the tyranny reign of sin in our lives, when that Lord is dead, then it's time for the flood to cover over that old Lord as we rise up to be with our new Lord and be a spouse to the Lord Jesus in this pure covenant of marriage. He says it's not the removal of dirt from the the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. And that's translated as answer or pledge. But the word in the Greek is eparatima. And it refers to solemn questions given under legal interrogation where you were abjured to tell the truth. Like in a court case, when they were going to ask you Questions that your life could hang on. They would eparatima you. They would, it was like putting you under oath in a manner of speaking. And so, let me, let me ask you this. If baptism is Peter's pledge or Peter's answer, who's the one giving the pledge and who's the one giving the answer? Is baptism where God makes a pledge to us? Is that what Peter's saying? That's not untrue, but that's not what he's saying. Who's making the pledge in baptism? We are. Who's giving the answer in baptism? We are. And what is the fundamental question being asked, and therefore what is the substantive answer being given? The fundamental question being asked is, who is the Lord of your life? Are you still married to your old stubborn Adamic will? Are you still the slave of your impulses? Because God is not going to share you with another. Are you still espoused to your ambitions? Are you still wedded to your own plans, your own strength, your autonomy, your identity apart from Jesus? Or has there been a mercy killing in your house and the man you used to be has been crucified? Because Paul says those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you're going to belong to Jesus, that's how you're going to receive his remission of sins is in this relationship covenant. But you've got to leave the old man in the grave. When God made the first covenant of circumcision, he did something that had never been done before. He set up, he had Abraham set up a fairly standard arrangement of, for a covenant. This was fairly typical in, in the Near East where, where Abraham, where God was having him do this in Mesopotamia and, and, and those cultures. What he had Abraham do is he had him kill a bunch of animals, poor things, and put them, cut them in two and part them, set them on either side of of kind of this clear aisle way. And this was a typical configuration for a covenant. And and typically, Abraham must have surely anticipated that God was going to do what was typical here. 
Because typically you'd have this, hat, this calf that was split in half and this lamb or goat that was split in half and this pigeon dove that was split in half and, and you'd create this aisle and, and on one side of the opening, the great king, the conquering king would stand. And on the other side, this was in the typical covenants, on the other side of the opening, the conquered lesser king, the vassal king would stand. And they would, the conquering king would call across to the lesser king and he would say, Do you agree to the covenant we have made and to the terms you have sworn to? If so, you know, make the covenant here. And the lesser king would be expected to walk through the slain halves of these animals. And his actions of walking through were saying, Let it be to me as these animals if I break the covenant that I am making with you. So the Lord had him set this thing up, this typical ceremony, and they, Abraham set it all up, and uh, then the Lord told him to wait. You see, in all the history of deities and the stories of gods, of the pagans and the ancients, we see that their gods wanted them to obey. We see that their gods wanted them to be afraid that they often change their requirements in order to throw them off kilter. But we never once see that any of their gods sought the love of their subjects or the trust of their subjects. Never once. But in this configuration where Abraham is going to understand the covenant and he's going to understand who this God is that he is covenanting with, the Lord says, set it all up and he keeps the animals away, and I mean the birds away, and so on and so forth. And then at evening time, instead of God calling Abraham through this aisle of judgment, this burning lamp comes out, and this expression of Yahweh coming himself through this aisle of judgment. And for the first time in human history, the Almighty was saying, I am good, I am trustworthy, I don't want your capitulation, I want your love and your trust. And let it be to me, to Yahweh, if I ever break my word to you. He did not want Abraham to trust him because he was more powerful, he wanted Abraham to trust him because he was good, because he was righteous. Amen. And then he told Abraham what he needed to do. He said, I need you to walk before me and be blameless. He wanted Abraham to enjoin the journey of becoming more like God. He wanted him to walk before him and be blameless. Start the process of change today, he was saying. And then he said, I want you to do one other thing. I want you, every male among you, to be circumcised. I want this sign to be in your flesh and whoever is not circumcised shall be put out of his people, out from his people, for he has broken my covenant. God had not threatened Abraham. He had invited Abraham. He had, he had inspired Abraham's trust. Amen. And the threat was you could do something that would put you out from this relationship that we have started. All of this is symbolic of the day when Yahweh would fulfill the words he spoke through Zechariah. 
And the words he spoke through Isaiah when he says, I have inscribed them on the palms of my hand. Amen. When he said in Zechariah, they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only begotten son. In Jesus, God took on, the, he absorbed in his human son all the penalty and wrath that our sins had heaped up, stored up for us for eternity. He absorbed it in himself. Amen. And then he said, if you want to be freed from that, you've got to come into me. You've got to come become part of me. And Paul says that baptism is for the new covenant. Colossians 2, 10, 11, 12. He says baptism is for the new covenant what circumcision was for the old. So baptism is where we make the covenant. It's where we leave our independence and we come into that oneness with him. What is, what is this all? How do we summarize this? Why, why at the wedding? Where's Enoch and Hallel? There's Hallel. There they are. I knew they'd be together, two peas in a pod. They're preparing for Wednesday. Um, so on Thursday morning, she's going to wake up and she's not going to have the, the name she's had her entire life. Why is that? Why historically has that been? Because name denotes authority. Amen. Throughout the scripture. And that's why he gives us his name. Because it's his way of ending one authority, the tyranny of self and sin, and bringing us under the headship and covering of the one who died for us. And so he says in John, as many as received him, to them he gave the power, the exousia, to become sons of God, to those who, what? Believed in his name, who were born not of the will of blood, nor of flesh, nor of man's of God. Thank you, Jesus. And so baptism has got to be in the name of Jesus because that name is the articulation of his authority. That name is the declaration that ends one lordship and starts a new one. Thank you, Jesus. There's only one who's righteous. There's only one whose name is holy. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. When you want God's government to increase, you need his name to be there. It's the same thing he's saying in Matthew 28, 19, when he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's called the increase of his government and peace. Therefore, go ye into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We know that that name was Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, because His name, the Son's name, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. They knew that. That's why Luke just summarized it and said in his version of the Great Commission, that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in Jesus' name beginning at Jerusalem to all nations. And that's why Peter, understanding what that holy matchless name was, stood and said, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. 
That the remission of sins corresponds to the removal of lordship, the removal of identity, and the engrafting into a new place, into a new relationship. Baptism binds you to the relationship that saves you. Baptism is your covenant vow where you walk up with one name and you walk away with another. Thank you, Jesus. And on their foreheads they shall receive a new name, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, because she will be called the bride of God. Hallelujah. She will no longer be called forsaken. Remember when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he said, your house is being left to you desolate. That's forsaken. Until you say what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They told him in, in Acts 4, they said, don't preach anymore in this man's name. You're trying to bring his blood on our hands. Don't preach anymore in his name. And Peter said, he said, there is no other name that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the one where the Almighty and the mortal became one. <laughs> and he prayed that we would become one with them as he was with the Father. Thank you, Jesus. That is to say, he wanted us to come into the same place of submission. And that's what you're answering today. You're saying, those who ignored Noah, all those impulses that plugged their ears to the preaching of Noah, they're going down in the water today and they're staying there. <laughs> but the same water that judged the ungodly also lifted the godly in a covenant of hope. <laughs> Hallelujah. And there's a rainbow over the body of Christ today. Thank you, Jesus. There's a promise that God will never again deal with us this way if we keep our old man in the grave and we keep our new man in the ark the ark of the body of Christ, the ark of Christ. You know, when you go from country to country, I've had the experience a time or ten, <clears throat> but when you go from country to country, they love to put these stamps in your passport. I get one of those 50-page passports because I fill them up too fast. Stamp, stamp. The guy, just he doesn't even hardly look sometimes. He's like, pop, 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 pop. You know, passes it through. That's not what you're getting here. You're not getting a stamp on the passport that bears your name. You're getting a new passport, and it's the name of Jesus on that passport. Amen. And there aren't going to be any stamps because he's already been declared justified. Great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, preached among the nations, seen by angels, and received up into glory. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, and his righteousness, his work is finished. Now it's up to us to become part of that one whose work is finished. We're not going to get there and say, I've got the Jesus stamp. We're going to get there, and we're going to say, my life is hid. You can't find me. I lost my spirit of rebellion, and I received the spirit of sonship. I lost the name of my own authority and I took on the name of him who died for me. I lost my purpose and ambition and I accepted the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. Oh God, what a great salvation.
salvation God has offered to us. Thank you, Jesus. Have you ever woken up after, some of you were married, woken up morning after your wedding and like pinch yourself? Did, I, did that really happen? I still kind of feel like me. Well, you're going to do that after your baptism too. This isn't magic washing. This is commitment. But as you stand in those waters, think about what you're burying. You're becoming united with Jesus' death. But his death was judgment. It says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. He received a curse. He received the condemnation that we were going to get in hell. And so think about that when you stand in those waters. Think about these waters symbolize the judgment of God on rebellious flesh. And if that's still my Lord, then I'm calling a terrible judgment down on myself. But if I have truly broken that, if grace has truly broken that in my life, and I am no longer a slave to sin, then I can't wait. I can't wait to get down in and get back up and be free. <laughs> do you see it, what God has offered us? He's not offering to do something to us. He's offering to receive us into himself. <laughs> 